Tyler, you you have twenty thousand YouTube subscribers. I know it's how that's did you insane. Do that? I mean, I know how you did it, but like you did it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's like a level that most people never get to. Really? Yeah. How long? How long? <laughs> when did you start? Uh oh, like a year ago, year and a half ago. The Federal Reserve of San Francisco is a fan of Kyla's content. Well, why wouldn't they be? Because the, the, <laughs> the Federal Reserve. The Fed, Who's the Fed governor in San Francisco? Daily. Right. Yeah. So her office reached out to you. Uh-huh. Uh, the Fed is now putting out like 18 podcasts a day. So it makes sense that they're kind con- is, is my mic not on? I'm not hearing myself. Well, they're, yeah, they're all in the, con- everyone's in the content business. Yeah. The Fed is big time in the, the content Fed's business. The Fed's basically an influencer at this point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Neil, Ka- <laughs> Neil Kashkari is an influencer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he won't stop talking. <laughs> well, I, that's part of the, part of the job is to, say things that will influence things in the direction they want them to go. Yeah. So I guess it makes sense that they would be watching YouTube. Are they are they doing any video besides like, speeches? I I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, they don't do like Gary Gensler does where he has We should those. hire you. <laughs> like as consultant. Yeah, 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 media. project stuff. Does, I, I wanted to work on that with Does him. Bill Dudley have a Substack? No, he just has his Bloomberg. Mm. He doesn't need a substitute. He just did an actually. He just did an opinion piece. The Federal Reserve owes the world to Mia Culpa. Oh, he's geez. like he's like <laughs> he's oh, like no. guns blazing because he was the dissenter, right? You can on the do, Bernanke yeah, Fed. Yeah. You can do that when you're out. Like no, but he, no, out. but he but he was he was dissenting the whole time. He was like the only one, I think. Well, also he was the New York Fed, which is yeah. the most important Fed. It's like on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like the New York Fed is King's Landing. Uh-huh. Do you watch Game right? of Thrones? No. So, but she's with me on that. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, Williams came out with that whole bedrock commitment to price stability piece. That was pretty intense. Mike, I have a new drop. Zero percent chance. What do you think? I can't f-ing hear. I can't hear. No, no, no. That one's very low. That one's uh, very okay. low. You can't. Hear. You, you can't I hear can't, anything. I can't hear myself. No, I hear. Oh, make sure he's is your, on. Is your headphones working? Yeah, I'm good. Kyle, are you here good? Yeah, I can hear. Oh, there you are. Oh wait. Uh, hello, hello. Did Kyle, you bring? Did Kyle you bring Kyle a copy, yeah, yeah. Bob? Did you okay. bring a copy okay. of the book? Yeah. Okay. So I have one copy. Where is it? I'm just going to hold it up for the camera. Hello, hello, hello. I don't think I hear myself. I hear other people. I don't hear myself. Thank you. No, for real. No, here. Try it on. This is awesome. Oh, wow. That's you see, awesome. Have you written a book? I've never written anything like that. I advise no. against it. I'm going <laughs> to write an article. Amazing. Thinking of writing a book, reconsider. Yeah. It's really. I've heard it's, it's really bear. rough. Yeah. Oh, two years. This and you never wrote. You never wrote a book before this. Oh no, I wrote a book 33 years ago for the real estate courts. We taught at Wharton again. That's how I got the job at CNBC. Yep. Was oh, okay. Cool. Course on real estate. It I was, love the pictures. I love the pictures in here. Talking am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. Is Bob with oh, uh, wow. Muhammad Ali? Warren. Warren Buffett. Who's this? Uh, that's uh, Jimmy. That's Warren Buffett's Jimmy specialist for Jimmy 25 McGuire. years. Yeah, yeah. That was great a- legend on the floor. He helped kind of make me on the floor. Like he convinced everyone to talk to me. Walter Cronkite, yeah. Jack Welch. Yeah, that was the day. That was the Jack Welch top. Right, that one day, right you there. With Fidel Castro. Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> not a good story with all Fidel Castro. All the stories are in this book. Jimmy Page played. Uh, yeah, whole lot of love. We should I play that. Today, what year was that from? May 2005. Aretha Franklin. She was wonderful. Do you know what the you know what they said? Sam, uh, uh, Motley Crue. Hey, Mike. Yeah, Mark, Motley Crue. What's the uh, Stan Lee? They want that was my favorite of all time. Stan like Lee? you never meet somebody like you meet people all the time that are famous, but all of a sudden you meet somebody that you really meant a lot to you. Like 
I as collected Marvel comics when I was a kid. Yeah. I'm old. I, yeah. I mean, I'm talking 63, Stan, 4, 5. Stan Lee would freak me out. And I'm, I ran up to him and said, oh, my God, I am so happy. I still have Avengers 1. I have X-Men 1. I still have the original shit. You have your collection? He looked at me and said, I don't have anything anymore. I got oh, rid of it God. decades ago. He was in his big fight at the time with, yeah. with Disney. He lost control of Marvel for He lost totally control of yeah. it. And now, then they made up with him. But that was when he was really – and he, he just said, I, I don't have anything. You have any theories on – on why they can't make a good Fantastic Four movie? Uh, the characters aren't, I mean, other than the thing, the guy, the main leader is just boring. But and the girl's not shit? interesting yeah. enough. She's not edgy enough. What's the main guy? Doc is a. Uh, the, the stretch. Mr. Uh, fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. He's, not, he's not interesting. Because yeah. in okay. they tried twice. The they're, both, they're both I mean, terrible. the Human Torch is kind of cool, but the, the two lead, the, the, the husband and wife are boring. Yeah. That's that's the problem. They should have them get divorced. <laughs> like they should, right? right? Like they no. should make it. This see, this would be my favorite Hello? picture. Hello? Yeah, you and Art Cash. Thank you. He so is. That's, uh, that's my. That's he's my coming guy. to the party. Is he coming? Yes, he I'm, called. You know, and said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. coming. Oh, great. I'll be Thanks. there. Uh, ahead. Look at how great is that shot? Incredible. Is, is that at Bobby Vans or is yeah. that before? But that is. Yeah, he he. Uh, you know, he decamped the day they went public. They closed the luncheon club on the sixth floor as a cost-saving measure in 2006. It was a loser. It always was. But it was where everybody hung out at the top in the main dining room in the, in the luncheon club on the sixth floor. And for 50, 70 years, that's where people had hung out. Uh, and they did it as a cost-saving John thing. And they were, were so furious that he went, took everybody the Friends of Fermentation, these are people that hung out with Art at the bar upstairs in the NYSC, De literally walked across the street to Bobby Vance and never went back. Yeah. Oh, that's how it happened. Yeah. That was a cost-saving thing. And then they just closed Bobby Vance. A couple weeks ago. They closed couple, it a few weeks yeah. ago. Kinda, he was heartbroken. Yeah. But it was the end of an era. It, well, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like he has a lot of places to go now. And, and I told him, you know, we'll go to Harry's. Go hang out. At Harry's is doing the 50th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, the 18th. And he's, Harry's going to, we're all going to go. Art's coming in. We're going to go. Harry's going to be there. Harry's is like the last place on, on Wall Street. It's not Stone Street. Stone Street's its own thing. Harry's is the last place where you'll see the guys with the white collars and the blue yeah. shirts and suspenders and it's guys in their 50s, 60s. Traders still go there. The, Traders it's the still last go thing. there. It's the last of them, right? Yeah, he owns that whole block. You know, Peter, his son, owns Stone Street. They own all everything yeah. on that block. He owns the pizza place and uh, the uh, the place next door. All, all the bars are owned by him. Mm. So he's he's 85 now, and he's opening a new restaurant in West Palm Beach oh, called really? Harry's. And I can't. I, I don't understand how he has the energy. Yeah. I haven't seen him since COVID. I'm going to see him for this thing. God knows. Carla, have you been to the stock exchange? No. Well, maybe. Yes. I've been to, yeah, NYSE. I know somebody who's pretty influential on the floor, Bob yeah. Pisani. <laughs> you ever so, want to come down, come down <laughs> and, and tell us all about it. We'd love to see you. Yeah. I'd love to have you down there. Let's we're looking go. for new people. And that's another thing I want to talk about. Yeah. How we're getting new people involved in the markets. Because you guys have an edge on this better than anybody, which is why I went yes. to your conference. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Thank Alex. You're the man. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Appreciate Thank it. Sorry. So, Bobby, you were saying new I, blood conference. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about uh, – I want to get a plug for the conference and hear about next year. Yes. Because we're going to double it. We're going to have 5,000 next year. We're going That's for the goal. It. We're going to try. Uh, and I really feel like uh, like Robin Hood, uh, 20 million 
new people three yeah. years ago. I thought this is the greatest yeah. thing in ever. And, and the derision these people were met with on Wall Street, a bunch of Reddit, no nothing. I could not figure it out. Vlad Tennant, all right, he made a lot of mistakes, whatever yeah. the hell he did. But 20, who else had 20 million? Who else ever got 20 million accounts in a year or two? The thing that I, the thing I, that I was saying during that, I was not like into like all the GameStop ape stuff, but like I understood it. I remember back in the late 90s when I was 20, I wasn't doing such great shit back then. It's the, like it's not like every generation doesn't start off stupid and then learn. Like that's how it exactly. works. There's no generation that got into the stock market and had it figured out in the first year. So I was basically like, can we give the kids a, a chance yeah. to like figure this out? Do they have to be right. do they have to be bogle bogleheads in day on day one? No, but that's our job. Right. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. What are you guys whispering about? John, are we doing this thing? Let's do this thing, coming in with the clots. Trying to figure out a hum. There's a hum in the room? Yeah. I think it's the excitement. I'll fix it. I'll fix it in post. I think it's the excitement. We'll we always fix everything in post. So markets are HODing. Episode 66. Oh, oh my speak. God, here it goes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Markets Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Crane Shares. I want to point your attention to a webinar that they're going to be hosting next Tuesday, October 18th at 10 a.m. Eastern. It is going to be on the Q4 Outlook as well as a Q3 Market Review. On that call is Crane Share CIO Brendan Ahern, their head of international, Dr. Xiaolin Chen, and their general counsel, who used to be the U.S. ambassador to Singapore, David Adelman. On that call, they're going to talk about what drove performance in Q3, insights on U.S.-China relations, and much more. Again, that's Tuesday, October 18th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Hit the links in the show notes to find out more. Wait, we've done 66 episodes? Wait. I'm always amazed by the number. Was that the bottom? Was that was that the bottom? No. no. Uh, I was, you, you should hand my music. Zero percent chance. Uh, zero percent chance. Is that you? It doesn't work. All right. It doesn't work. That we tried. All right. I'm so excited for today. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We have two rock stars on the show, two first-time friends on The Compound and Friends. We're going to start with Bob Pisani. Bob has been a reporter for CNBC since 1990. Wow. Uh, in addition to covering the global stock market, Bob covers IPOs, ETFs, financial market structure. Prior to becoming the on-air stocks editor, Bob covered realist. Uh, I'm going to throw this out. I'm going to say, I said this on Instagram this weekend, you have been the constant companion of the American investor for 25 years. Is that too much? Or is that, <laughs> is that about right? I like, I like the role there. I like the way it comes off your tongue. And I like to believe that um, I'm a lot more humble than that. And part of the reason I wrote the book is to explain what I think I know and what I think we don't know overall and ask people to be a, a little more humble in what they think and, and full, how they full, advise okay. other people. Full humility, understood. But still, your voice, your face, I, it's fair to say one of the most <laughs> constant things in the lives of investors at least since I'm doing this, like you're always there in a, in a very good way. Anytime somebody 
sees you, they're going to get an explanation of what's going on and they're going to get it in plain language and they're going to get, I think, you're an optimist overall. Even Like I, I watched you report on 2008 prior to us ever meeting and you were one of the people that was just trying to be constructive every day and it, it helped people, so – it's important to be a glass half full person. I don't understand people who get up every morning and say, well, ladies and gentlemen, life sucks and it's not going to get any better. The glass half empty crowd. And I've always been amazed how many people there are out there well, that are like that. Well, it's a business model for some people, which we could, we could get into. I yeah. want to introduce Kyla Scanlon. Kyla is the founder of Bread, a financial education startup, as well as a writer, researcher, and financial influencer. Kyla frequently puts out financial-related content on her YouTube, 20,000-plus subs. We'll give that a round of applause. And you're big on TikTok. I think uh, TikTok and Instagram, and I think the first time I ever saw any of your stuff was not your written stuff, but people sending me your videos like, mm -hmm. this girl's blowing up. You got to see what she's doing. You gotta, yeah. And you're, like, very good at it. So, And that's arguably the most important skill right now if you're a financial communicator is, vi is video, mm -hmm. short form video. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I would say it's super important to incorporate, yeah, because that's just attention spans, right? This Well, this is how people are getting their news. Yeah. So uh, my 3,000 word blog posts aside, <laughs> like this is, but you're also but you're also a very good writer. What's your, um, what's your Substack called? Uh, it's just kyla.substack.com. That's yeah. easy. How did you get that? You were early? I early, yeah. Super okay. early to Substack. So wait, let me just give Kyla one more plug. So uh, Kyla has become, burst onto the scene. I think one of the things that you did this see that really vibes. Absolutely <laughs> nuts vibe was session. the vibes. Yeah. You said it's a vibe session. People ran with it. And you did a opinion post in the f***ing New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. How did like, that happen? They reached out to me and were like, do you want to write an opinion piece about this? Do you think it's important? And I was like, sure. But how Incredible. do you think they knew to reach out to you? Like, because you wrote, you wrote on your Substack about it and yeah. it sort of caught on. It caught on. Yeah. I mean, I think because it was a little bit controversial, some people do not like the word vibes. <laughs> so a lot of people um, didn't like it and a lot of people did like it, you know, so. Okay. But you have since become extremely influential and I'm so glad to have the two of you here today of all days because it was kind of a momentous thing that happened today. So let's recap. We got September CPI um, up 8.2% year over year. That was hotter than 8.1 expected. Uh, core CPI was on fire. All-time all high. Well, for this, for the, it accelerated. Yeah, it's, it's actually getting faster. It's getting worse. Uh, up 6.6%. Um, core CPI up 0.6% month over month versus 0.4 expected. So basically- this is one of the worst of a series of very bad inflation prints and kind of almost makes you think like nothing the Fed is doing is working. And so what did the stock market do? Well, this morning, Josh and I were driving into Manhattan and Sentiment Trader, who I'm a fan of his data that he puts out, he said this, the S&P 500 is on track to open lower by more than 1% after six consecutive losses and at a 52-week low. The only other time since 1982 that that has happened. So again, just to recap, lower by more than 1% of the open after six consecutive losses at a 52-week low was October 2008. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of shit. You, said to, you were like, we're really in the we're, shit. We're like, in this it. This is what it is. We're in it. Yeah. And of course, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say of course. We're now recording this at 2.55 and the S&P 500 is up 2.75% yeah. on the day. Because How many, give it to me in points. Stop. How many points is the Dow up? No, I, for I real, won't, for real. I, I don't like to entertain this nonsense. 
Who is cares it? about Dow points? Because, what is Bob, it? do you care about Dow points? No. Why, Thank what? you, Bob. Because the Dow's not important. It's a price-weighted index, and it's not a, a good reflection. For, for the simpleton over here, it's up 900. Dow, it's up 900 points. Dow, you have right, that's a lot of friggin' points. <laughs> Isn't the Dow the people's index, though? Yes. I understand how it's calculated. <laughs> yes, but, but, but we're, we're, we're in the business, and we're professionals, professionals use S&P. Okay. So if somebody on the street says to you how the market do, would you would you give them an S&P number or would you say that went up 900 I would say the market went up 2.4% or something like that. And do you think that resonates as as much with somebody as 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 opposed to if you were like Dow went up almost 1000 points? But Isn't that it, so much nobody, more evocative? No, but nobody knows necessarily that that's 3%. And what we need to do is educate people about okay. percentages. That's what matters. So you want to see Michael on this? Okay. Well, because Bob is a sensible man. But what, what was so interesting about today is that there was so much data coming into today that how bad markets have been reacting on all CPI prints. So JP Morgan did this thing showing that over the past 10 years, never- John, let's throw it up. Never has the S&P been uh, so reactive negatively to an there economic is, indicator as it is now to CPI. This oh, is the wow. entire game. All you need to know going into today was what was CPI going to do? And you could predict the market except for the fact- that you can't predict the market because <laughs> it was down a thousand points at the open and now it's up 900. Right. So are you asking why did the market rally? Is that the question? What are we saying? What's the narrative? Well, what you want to look for here is first off, the standard narrative. Okay, the sentiment indicators, everything's oversold. The problem with the word oversold is it can be oversold for a long time. How many oversold rallies have we had this year? We had one in March, we had one in April, we June. had one in June, June. Yep. we had Two in September, at yep. least. And every time we come on, we show the AAII numbers. We show RSI numbers. And Good look how oversold yeah. this. My God, it's got to bounce. And it bounces and then it goes down again. So what does this tell you? We're in a very unusual, extraordinary situation. Whether it's COVID, whether it's the Fed, whether it's the Russian invasion, weird stuff's going on. And oversold sentiment indicators don't help us that much. So why did we bounce today? And I think the key, the minute this happened... I start getting messages. Hey, Bob, why is the VIX down today? That's what I said. What, why was the VIX down? What the heck down? is this all about? So I call my. I, 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 go ahead. I mean, no, no. So why did it bounce? In other words, it would have bounced eventually, but why was today on this negative CPI print today? So, That's so, the question. Okay, so here's the question. Look at the VIX and why it's down. Uh, ask the question. Why is the VIX down when, in theory, you would think it would go up? Because if it's a fear indicator, it should go up. And the VIX measures events 30 days out and probabilities. It's literally an indicator of puts and calls for the near-term S&P 30 days out exactly. There are three events that matter in the next 30 days. The CPI, the November 2nd Fed meeting, and then the election. All of a sudden, right now, we got two of these data points probably taken out. We now know what the CPI is, and we now all know that the Fed's going to do 75 points. basis right. points. Two of the three data points have been taken out. Therefore, a lot of people would cover positions believing now that they have a reasonable expectation of what's going to go on. Now, the numbers are very unusually high. It, it is very odd for the VIX to stay over 30. 32 implies a, you know this rule, divide by 16 to get the daily moves in the VIX? No, give, it, give it to us for the audience. There's a simple rule. The, the VIX is designed to tell you what do people expect the S&P 500 to move on a yearly basis in the, in the next year. Uh, on a monthly basis, 30 days. But if you want to know what's the daily swing, you divide by 16, and there's some reasons for that. But the VIX at 32 
implies that the market is expecting a 2% move on a daily basis for the next 30 days. That is extraordinarily high volatility. And you really need to have a lot of stuff go bad for it to move that much in the next 30 days on a daily basis. So all of a sudden, we got two of the three most important data points. Remember, it's just 30 days out. That's all the VIX measures. And now you have these two out of these three data points, and they already know. So they reduced the probability of weird outside events coming down. They covered some positions. Some people are in cash, so they need less protection overall. So the, it, it, that's how you get to that point. All of a sudden, you get some people just covering shorts, and the market changes. So we've now, does that mean, by the way, does that mean that suddenly we're out of the woods? It doesn't. <laughs> that's the problem. It doesn't. It, 20 days from now, we could have people going crazy and buying more puts again. We're always in the woods. Well, yeah, never this is why I say, everybody says, okay, so now we're out of the woods. You just explained <laughs> away the problem. No, we're not. That doesn't- No, but I thought that was a very good explanation about it being a 30-day lookout. Yeah. And November 2nd falls squarely within that 30-day period. It's exactly in there. So then what are you, you know, what are you going to worry about? You're going to worry about the Fed meeting now in November and then December, But Bob's course. right. You remove uncertainty, even if once you get the certainty, it's bad certainty. Right. At least you remove, un- and that's what the market hates. The only thing they care about when you're owning that VIX, that fr- that that- cash is what's going to happen in the next 30 days and what will move the market. And those three events are the ones that would move the market. With two of them out of the way, less probability of things going wrong. 2% moves on a daily basis, extraordinary. Very difficult to sustain that. Over I was looking at this morning on the open, I was looking at the bank stocks wanted to open green and the dollar falling and the VIX not budging. And I didn't predict anything from this, but I just said, Something is not going according to the script. Based on the chart we just had up, every CPI day. Josh said we're going so much lower. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, but I I still feel that way. Kylo, can you explain to us why these inflation prints continue to accelerate? Um, I know this is baffling economists around the world, but what's your what's your take on this? I mean, it's just really tough because now the inflation has become so broad based. It's always been really broad based, but now it's lagging to a certain extent. So, like, what's being reflected in inflation right now is shelter shelter costs are apparently high according to CPI. But if you look at Realtor.com or Redfin, rents are actually slowing down. Um, healthcare services are increasing in price. The Fed can't do anything about any of that, though, right? So, like, all the Fed can really do is raise rates in order for people to stop demanding things, but they can't like build more apartment buildings. Um, so it's sort of that's like the issue with inflation is that what the Fed is trying to do is just like hammer down the market or hammer down inflation. But that might not fix like the underlying problem. The Fed can't make more people turn to the nursing profession. Yeah. The Fed is not going to build apartment buildings. The Fed is not going to discover oil. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fed is not going to build homes. There's like a lot of uh, structural things. So if they want to just knock down demand like a shotgun approach, I guess that's what that's the only thing they really can do. Mm-hmm. But the scary thing is that shelter is about a third of CPI, and what the rent, uh, what rent measures is people that are already in leases. It doesn't show what like new rents are being signed for. So that's going to take a, a while for itself to work its way through CPI. So inflation can stay high for mm-hmm. longer than we probably think. So are you with Jeremy Siegel was on this afternoon saying this is the problem? These the the Fed is now continuing to raise rates when we've already got data that indicates things are going to start changing. Mm-hmm. Are you with Jeremy then that that the, the Fed should stop with this aggressive program? I mean, I mean, that's like the tough part. Like, so theoretically, yes, they should stop. But like, 
you still have inflation. You still have to fix inflation. And ideally, fiscal policy would step in and be like, okay, this is how we build more apartments. This is how we allocate None labor more effectively. But exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the only mechanism that can happen is the Fed continuing to raise rates. But that isn't really, you know, and everybody knows this, but it's not like addressing the underlying issue. You think they know this internally? Like they might, if, if, right, if so. we're all well aware of the lagging effect of housing, for example, in the inflation date, like this is not news to them, but yet, and yet, they're going forward anyway. So either they know something that the rest of us aren't thinking about or they've said internally, you know what? This is basically all we got. But but two things. Wages just increased at the highest level since 1980, and that's the sticky part. And what if they said, you know what, guys, things are starting to break. Maybe we just pause a little. If they communicate that to the market and financial conditions ease, like the market rips, they're like, well, why, why did we just do all that if just to undo it? Yeah. Well, they're, they're between we, a rock and a hard place. Is Here's the... Broader question, simply raising interest rates or adjusting the money supply is a very blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. The Fed has nothing else. Is there any other way we could fine-tune the economy? Is there anything else? Can we change the 1913 Federal Reserve Act and give them some mm -hmm. kind of other fine-tuning powers? Do Isn't that the we, could do immigration, we could do immigration reform and, and bring workers in from all over there the world, go. and that wouldn't solve anything in the next three months. And that's but, also not a Fed thing. Uh, correct. Right. But so well, I'm asking you an, an econometric question. What if, what other powers could we give the Federal Reserve that are less blunt than, than this that might be able to fine tune it? Could you? Or is the economy just so big, it's basically unknowable and it doesn't matter? I think a lot of it right now is about labor allocation. So the reason that wages are going up is because you can't hire what or you can't fire what you didn't hire, right? And so like a lot or something like that. So a lot of people like fired a lot during the pandemic. So like construction, mining, utilities, et cetera. And so that now they have to raise wages in order for people to come work for them. And like the Fed can't really control labor allocation. They just can nudge everything in the right direction. So to answer your question, I don't know the answer to it. But like the the tools that they have, shrinking the balance sheet, raising rates, um, talking is a big tool for them, communication in general, setting the standard like that. Well, I think they dried up. I, so I think they did some things that aren't showing up in, in maybe the economic data yet, but they have shown up in sentiment. Yeah. They have knocked out the funding source of a million startups. So we don't have IPOs anymore in this country. Last year we had a thousand. They killed the vibes. We'll have, well, they killed the vibes for sure. Yeah. So this year, I, I don't know if we're going to have a hundred IPOs, but we're definitely not going to have the venture funding. We're not going to have all the startups. We're not going to have all the hiring that comes with stock options. All of that is over with. Again, it doesn't solve the immediate issue, but that has to at some point have an effect on the labor market, even if it's regional, even if it's just in, in California. But to Kyla's point, and Nick Hollis spoke about this last week, companies just worked so hard and they still are working so hard to fill these openings. Maybe they're not, not going to be so quick yeah. to let them go. What do you think about it? I, the, Nick, Nick was on the show last week talking about the warehousing of talent. Mm -hmm. And if you're a CFO making these decisions, it's not so easy to just say, Let's cut loose a thousand people because how expensive will it be a year later to try to go and get yeah, them the back? The Fed is saying slow. The uh, saying to the economy slow down, and the economy is saying no. I don't think I will. Yeah, it's well, they can't. You know, to a certain extent, they have to keep on doing projects, and that's the thing. Like corporations are relatively okay right now. They have large cash balances. Like they're okay, um, but you know, the Fed is their like stock prices are not, but they are. Let's do. Let's yeah. go into this good news is bad news because I think one of my takeaways from today is that basically we have to root for bad news now. And I hate that. Like, like philosophically, yeah. that's not the kind of person that I am. But I feel like that's the only way we get closer 
toward the end of the cycle. What do you think about that? Of course, you're right. But the problem is this is why the public hates financial reporters. This is part of it, yeah. This is the bizarro world. Remember we were growing up, well, you you were young, but in Superman in the 1960s, bizarro, everything was upside down. And you should see the Twitter universe. Like, oh, you guys are rooting for the economy to go in the shitter. Thanks a lot. You yeah. know, yeah, because you want to stay with the stock market, you greedy bastards. And, I, you know, I have a problem with this, too. I always say, explain this to your mom. Robert, the news today was good. Job growth was very strong. No, mom, that's bad news. Yeah. Oh, Robert, why is that bad news? Well, kind of like the Fed wants the job market to fall apart so they can get a handle around the economy, around the inflation. Well, Robert, but if everyone loses their job, it's going to be really bad for, for the country. To your point. In and, your bo- and you have to explain to your mom why you're rooting for shit, things your, to fall apart. In your book, which we're going to talk more about, um, you, you said that one of the things you did early on was invent the viewer that you're speaking to. And it sounds like it's a composite of a regular person. You said she's 48. She, where does she live? Min- Minnesota? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. It was very specific. Yeah. But it was interesting. You created in your mind the person that you're speaking to, and that helped you decide how you wanted to present information each day. Well, this was 1990, and it was very early days of CNBC. And the problem was staring into a camera. You're looking at a black hole. So there's cameras around us here. You look into these things. What are, what's there? Who's looking back at you? Yeah. And you don't know. And it made me nervous because you have to assume a certain level of awareness and nomenclature. So if I was talking to somebody, and I was the real estate reporter in 1990, and I explained what, uh, talked about mortgages, I knew that most of them knew what mortgages were. But if I talked about mortgage-backed securities, they didn't know what mortgage-backed securities. So how do I know the level of sophistication? I invented someone in my head, a woman in 48 years old living in Minneapolis. Her husband worked for 3M, Minnesota Mining, and she had two kids who were 20 years old, 24 years old, and they were interested in buying a house. And she was watching me. And I could tell, I got to know her, and I could tell if my reports were on and they were at a certain level that she could understand, she liked it. And if I started getting wonky, I could see her actually wrinkling her nose. And so that's what I try to do as a reporter. Talk to a certain level. If you're going to go out of that, or you're going to explain the VIX, for example, take a minute and explain to do that. I think that's a brilliant device. And, you know, Kyla's content, I think you've, I don't, I think you've kind of stumbled upon the same idea, mm-hmm. which is your audience who's reading your Substack, following you on Instagram, on TikTok, you're giving all of this information to them, but in a very digestible way for that audience. So I, I, I who don't are think, you talking to? Yeah, do you do it? Did you? So I wanted to ask That's you, brilliant. who did you create? Who did you create in your in your mind? I, I mean, I just like I pretend that uh, it's my friends. So like, if I talk to my friends who most of the time don't like finance and often say like, oh, like why are you rooting for the world to burn? Um, I try to you know talk to them and talk to a younger demographic. So I target like you know fifteen years old to thirty years old, sort of that age range. Yeah. But that was like instinctual. You just said, I'm on a platform. I know who's here. Well, I mean, I know that, who's not here. You know, I'm 25, so I'm like, right. That's all I can talk to is like myself to a certain extent. Hey, wait, so. are you are you producing those videos every like by like? Are you doing all of that? I'm a team of one for everything. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> wow, it's bananas. Uh, let's do the Citigroup uh, economic surprise index. All right. So uh, to Josh's point about goodness being bad news, the link between the S and P 500 and Citigroup's widely followed surprise index for the U.S. economy has jumped to the most negative. Since 2015. So, Bob, what you were saying earlier, how could how could we look at the news and say, hey, this great data, the market, the market tanked? Well, that's what it is. The market is responding negatively to positive data that just won't quit. And Bespoke tweeted this yesterday that we have had the longest 
series of surprise upside beats on, on non-farm payrolls like ever, six in a row. And the and data- Every time the stock market sells the off. The data just won't turn and the market, neither will the market. So what should we be advising investors to do? I mean, how do you tell investors we're looking for layoffs here? Mm-hmm. Like, how, it's 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 so bizarre because we came we had a 22 million job comeback from the pandemic. Like, we literally we gained we worked so hard and did so much stimulus to get back all of the jobs that we lost in the pandemic, and it worked. Right. And now we want to reverse it, and we want to deliberately get to we're at three and a half percent unemployment. They're talking about four and a half. That's not, that's so. I know we talk in percentages. That's like a million something. A million and a half. A million and a half jobs. Yeah. If we were to people, get back to wow. people losing their a million jobs. and a half families with somebody not able to earn money to support those families, and that's what we're aiming for. But that's it's, that's not what I asked. A thirty. Let's say we got a thirty year old. Let's talk in. You're twenty five. Let's say we got a thirty year old. They got. $100,000 in, in stocks. They got an S&P fund. They got some individual stocks. What are we telling them Oh, to this do? is a blessing for younger investors. No, it's great for them. Good. They're not using yeah. the money. Good. Yeah, then, absolutely. Then, then why we should be emphasizing that. Absolutely. We should be educating people about the history of the markets. That so this is a very, that. very weird, unusual year. I'm so there's glad o- you There's said only that. 15 times since 1926 the S&P has been down 20% or more. 15 times since then that it's been down. Three quarters of the time the S&P 500 goes up year over year. And it goes up a lot. 10%. If you look at the times the S&P is up 10%, 56% since 1926, the S&P is up 10% or more. 56% of the time. 12% of the time, it's down 10% or more. Oh, let's, pull, let's take This a- is one of those 12% years. Oh, wow. There's a lot this more- This is one uh, of those rare green. years that There's a lot happening. more green here than red. Um, so what we're looking at is a chart of the S&P 500 to Bob's point about stocks usually going up. So 64% of the time- the S&P 500 has been within 10% of its all-time highs. And the opposite of that is, listen, these are not free returns. The reason why stocks go up, they're, they're risky. They're risky investments. And you have to eat the losses along the way. And so right now we're in a situation where we're between 20 and 30% off the highs. This is not unprecedented. It's happened 11% of the time. So, so one of the things about financial television is that, of course, wealthier people are watching it. Wealthier people tend to be older because they've had a lifetime to accumulate assets. A day where uh, a day where the S&P 500 is down 2% or a week where it's been down five straight days, it's not a good week for them because they, by and large, cannot replace that money in their portfolios. They've already earned it. They're not making as much as they used to or they're in retirement already. And you've got to cover the news for that audience, but there's a secondary audience and it's coming of age now and you made this point earlier. It's, be, you know, the people who opened their first Robinhood account two years ago or the people who got their first 401k at Fidelity in their new job. For that audience, nothing could be better than a down week, a down month in stocks. They can't touch the money for decades, right? They're forced savers. They're putting the money in no matter what happens. Why would they want to buy stocks from the boomers at a record high? Of what what purpose does that serve the buyer? So I actually created something. Uh, I had Michael reverse the S&P 500, and I called it the Investor Opportunity Index. And so I made a chart, and the chart is when the S&P drops, it, on my chart, it goes up. And I could say to an investor under the age of 50, hey, great news. 
the the investor opportunity index went up today by two percent. Here it is. It's the inverse S and P. Look, yeah. this is good. Yeah, that's a brilliant like, idea. Brilliant idea. So, so what we want to do though is so we you, have to talk to everybody though. We have to talk right, to both but groups, you, you, and it's not you easy. You said to they do. have they they have no reason to do anything. The problem is there's an itch to do something, and that may be the mistake. Yes. One of the things Jack Bogle is. Jack Bogle is the guy I talk about. The four or five people that influenced me the most. Jack Bogle is probably number one, the founder of Vanguard, and he used to say. Don't just do something, stand there. That most of the time when you get panicky, you will probably make a mistake. The most important thing is having a very, very clear plan. And you want to work on that from here. So you want to understand. And, and, and Warren Buffett once said, you want to know the way to do investing? He said, assume you only can make 10 decisions the whole time that you're doing this. And you'll be a lot more careful about things. So we need to, and we need to educate people about being careful and being thoughtful and deliberative. Bogle used to pound this into my head. Every time I called Bob, I don't see this on your TV station enough. He used to call it our TV station. Return <laughs> station risk. Station is to tell. Cost. Yeah, that's how you tell. Somebody's from the 40s. Your TV station, Bob, does not have enough fundamental investing. Return, risk, cost, and time. Return is what do you reasonably expect over time. Risk is how much can you afford to lose in your pocketbook and your psyche before it's too much. The cost is whatever you do, Bob, tell everyone don't spend a lot of money on the cost. The costs are what eat into the returns overall. And Bogle was brilliant at showing the long-term cost and the difference between having 1%, 2% returns over years. And finally, the time, how long are you investing? And here's the one point I think you've been up many times. If you start at 25 years old, you've got 60 years of investing. Think about that. 60, if you're going to live to 85, and we're all should assume that at least – you're going to have 60 years of investing. That's an astonishingly long period. This down year, as rare it is, as it is, is not going to make a difference in a long, long period. Now, the one thing we really ought to get at is, is there something really unusual long-term going on here? I believe that it's not. I believe that ultimately the reason the stock market goes up three quarters of the time is because of capitalism and American capitalism, which is ruthlessly efficient most of the time at allocating capital. Now you can say it's working us all to death and we can go on the other side of that. But in terms of return on capital, the American corporation is one of the finest things ever invented to provide profits that's, out there. That's so well said. Stocks don't just go up because they're risky. They go up because these are businesses and business yep. fundamentals. Dividends have increased at 7% a year since 1988. Earnings have gone up 6 or 7%. So to Bob's point, this is ruthless fundamentalism and it works. I think the problem for investors this year, this is very normal for the S&P 500 to go down 20 plus percent. That happens. It happens. The bond market. That's why people are so freaked out. And that's why the American Association of Individual Investors, the bearishness is off the charts because just seven to 10 year treasuries, which are, that's money, good money, right? That's, that's, that's bonds is in a 23% drawdown. That's supposed to be the risk off part that makes the stock volatility bearable. And it's worse than stocks in some cases. But look why. Look at the other side of that. That forced an enormous amount of money into the stock market in the last 15 years. Since 2010, the S&P 500 has gone up 15% a year. That Present. is extraordinary. Present. The average return is 10% a year on the S&P for de yeah. decades. Yeah. What, what accounts for that bizarre 5% outperformance? You could say, okay, the Fed's pumping money, more, more liquidity. I think that's probably a factor. But the fact that there was no alternative, Tina was, mm -hmm. was a very real idea, and it drove people out of the bond market. Now maybe more people are coming back in. So yes, uh, I, it's very uncomfortable. Well, now but we have it's the not opposite. like a mystery. We don't understand what happened. Oh, we know. We know exactly what's happened. But now we have the opposite. We have reverse Tina. There are lots of alternatives. Yes. From muni bonds to um, 
investment grade, corporate bonds, treasuries. There are so many other things. Um, those things probably not as attractive to younger investors, but you know, the, the, the longer you've been investing and the less runway you have in front of you, yeah. it's it's obvious at this point. Yeah. I'm going to scoop up 5% and not worry about any of this bullshit. See, so to me, people ask me about this. I say, look, here's the only question. Do, do you still believe in capitalism as practice? Do you think the United States is still the best place in the world to invest? Remember, Churchill used to say that democracy is the worst political system except all the others. And capitalism is the best economic system except for all the others. Nobody who has looked at any kind of financial history for the last 500 years would disagree that capitalism has made, has lifted mankind out of poverty in a way nothing else ever Co uh, has. College students would probably disagree. Well, then they need to get a modern. Bit, they need to read the his economic history for the last 500 well, years. Do you, but do you think, though, if we continue to say in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, not that young people pay attention to that. And Kyla.substack.com. <laughs> no, but do you think like if the message is Wall Street wants layoffs, that somebody who's 25 and is probably in line to be laid off would think capitalism is successful? I mean, Kyla, go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm asking one of the two 25-year-olds in front of me. <laughs> like, what is that messaging like received by young people that like, wait, what the f Wall Street wants people to get fired? I think it's rough. Um, so I think like we can talk about like it's very good that the S and P keeps on going up, um, but a lot of people don't really have exposure to that unless they're in their four hundred one k. A lot of people, you know, they yeah. have Robinhood accounts. That's their first exposure, but they're down, you know, seventy percent now. So it doesn't feel very good. And I also think that there's a lot of like demographic envy to a certain extent. So with the housing market in particular, you know, the baby boomers own about one third of the housing market. Thirty two million people have no mortgage. Um, so it feels like you know, could I ever get a house? And then it just feels like a crisis after a crisis after a crisis. So yes. like for me, you know, I was born in the late 1990s. Uh, tech bubble happened before I could even talk. And then we had That must have been rough on you. Yeah, I, Were I, you the e My portfolio baby? was so bad. Was it actually you? Pets.com. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I think it's But just you bounced been, back from the tech bubble. Yeah, and then 2008 happened and then a right. pandemic happened. So it's just been a lot of like bad stuff for everybody. But I think like the younger generation has become increasingly financially nihilistic about, you know, the future of what it what it all means. What, is that, what does that look like when you you say they've become increasingly nihilistic, like the, like the sarcasm in the memes Crypto. and yeah. trading things that you know have no value just to piss other people off, yeah, like the that kind of thing. AMC, GME stuff, um, I think that sort of proved against like this concept of like markets are fundamentally businesses. Like AMC and GME are not companies, they're stocks, right? And so I think that was like one part of it. And then I think crypto is a big part of it too, where it's like there's these alternatives that are going against the status quo per se. But of course, if you own Peel the Layer, it's similar to the But you have like quo. a million people who think the purpose of the market is to bankrupt the hedge fund manager in Miami. Like, there's like a lot of people who are, it's like, what, why are you doing this trade? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like an F you to. Right. Against uh, the wait, system. Why are you really doing it? No, that's yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. That's very hard to understand until you realize the context right. that that person has grown up in. And that's, I, look, I don't think capitalism is in trouble, but I do think there's more disillusionment now well, amongst young people than there was in my generation. Don't young people always feel like the, the older generation is f***ing them over? Thank you. <laughs> uh, 19, I'm, I'm older than all of you. So uh, 1970, I was 15 years old. My father gave me my first stock, Kawiki Burlco. They made beryllium for the space program. And I was in the NASA. And he said, I hope, Robert, 15 years old, I hope you will invest in stocks. I believe in the stock market. I believe in America. My father was Horatio Alger. He was a poor Italian kid from the Bronx. And I looked at him like, 
are you nuts? The, the stock market's terrible. I don't care about mm. the stock market. I want to go be in the 60s. I want to go to Led Zeppelin concerts and be Norman Mailer and be a famous writer. I sure as hell don't want to be a stock market investor. And I thought he was crazy. So we, ha our whole generation, literally all of us in the 1970s did nothing. You know what I bought? Nothing. And when Kawiki Broco was bought out in 1976, I refused to send, tender my shares. I had two shares. I refused because I thought, you know, there were a bunch of, you know, capitalist swine, and I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't buy anything until I got to CNBC in 1990, and that's when I started taking it seriously, and that was a massive mistake. Our entire generation, the baby boomers, all of us, we screwed up royally. We didn't invest early enough. Thank God people like you are around to talk to your generation about investing early, even if it's a little cynical or they're doing weird things. At least you're doing something. We did nothing, and as a result, you know what happened? We are underinvested. And we and I, and I describe this in the book, had to take a lot more risk in 1990 mm -hmm. than I otherwise would have. I put everything in more because I realized I'm screwed. You're playing catch up. Yeah, already. the median, the median we retirement. We all are. Our whole yeah, generation yeah. has been on the median retirement balance for boomers is, is dreadful. And I think one of the reasons why it feels so shitty for young people is because they can voice their opinion. Mm -hmm. They can broadcast. Back in the 70s, it was you and your buddies talking. It wasn't you. You weren't talking to the world like instantaneous data just flowing freely. Yeah. I want Bob, I want to get to um, this, this part of your book where you talk about the most important developments in trading that you've seen in the last 30 years. So you mentioned the birth of electronic trading and decimalization. Then you mentioned ETFs and passive investing. And now you're saying the more recent thing, um, behavioral finance, yeah. uh, really like going from being an obscure topic to being something that's now on the minds of most financial intermediaries and their clients. Yeah, I, did, did, I had to talk about the people who had influenced me the most, including Jack Bogle, Jeremy Siegel, who wrote Stocks for the Long Run, Charlie Ellis, uh, who, who wrote uh, Winning the Losers Game, oh, yeah. uh, and Burton Malkiel, who wrote the intro to the book, uh, most important book, in my opinion, uh, Random Walk Down Wall Street. But in, in 2000, Robert Schiller had a book out called Irrational Exuberance at the very height, literally March 2000, <laughs> it was extraordinary, where he talked about what was essentially behavioral economics. But Schiller had made an observation long before about the volatility of the market. He said, look, if we buy stocks because we're expecting a dividend and a future stream of earnings, you would expect a certain level of volatility in the stock market. But he found that the volatility level was much higher than would be expected by rational investing. And he concluded there is some kind of irrational component yes. that must explain this this much higher volatility level. This was the birth of behavioral economics. Behavioral economics purports to show how people really behave, not how they're supposed to behave by some theoretical model. And as you know, people don't buy low, sell high. They buy high and sell low. Why? Yes. And behavioral economics tries to figure this out. And that's that's the important thing. So it turns out there are all, why are people so bad at everything? Why are people so bad? Not just amateur stock pickers, professional stock pickers are bad. Economists are terrible. The Federal Reserve has a terrible track record of forecasting where the GDP is going to be one year from now. How is it possible? I've been doing this 30 years. I look around. How is it possible? Everyone is so bad. And, and getting this, worse. And getting worse. Statistically. And there, it turns out there's two things that I, that I have learned. And one is there are enormous amounts of biases that people have. They have cognitive biases. They have emotional biases. They have emotional biases that sort of affect the way they think, that, the way they feel. So people have lost 
loss aversion, for example. People are afraid of a loss much more than the expectation of a gain. Mm -hmm. This explains why people hold on to losing positions mm -hmm. for a long period of Myself time. Myself included. People have yep. overconfidence. They think that they're on a win streak, therefore they're always going to be on a win streak. And these biases infect your ability to make decisions. The other problem is the future really is unknowable. So imagine being an analyst. It's December 2022. You're supposed to figure out what's going to be the earnings of this company you're covering. A year from now, you think, hey, that can't be hard. It turns out it's almost impossible because the amount of data that would go into making that price in the next year is enormous. You could have macro effects where the economy is going to change like we've seen this year. You could have company effects where the, the company has a new competitor where all of a sudden they're bought out. The CEO could fall ill. There are literally thousands of variables and they're unknowable. So it's kind of like the weather. The weather is pretty good. The forecasters have gotten good three, four, five days out. You go past seven, they're clueless yeah. because the amount of variables multiply and there's unknowable effects that go on. So when you realize this, you see number one, huge amount of biases. And I list like 30 of them. This is yeah. what behavioral economics has got a whole school studying the biases, how you screw up your thinking. And number two, when you recognize the unknowability of the future, you start getting very humble. You start saying, you know, these analysts are a bunch of dum-dums. I can't believe they can't get anything right. And you realize why they can't. So the book that had the biggest influence on me was uh, Philip Tetlock's book, Super Forecasting. Great. This guy's at the University Great. of Pennsylvania. Amazing. Yeah. He looked, everything I just said, he studied in an academic way and came to some conclusions. He said, it's true, the future is unknowable, but you can get better at forecasting. And he talked about two different groups of people, foxes and hedgehogs. Mm -hmm. Hedgehogs are people who have strong ideology, one big idea, and they superimpose this ideology on the world. That's Duncan. Foxes are yeah, people who say, are- like Duncan. Foxes <laughs> are people who are very- chill. They're very, they don't have strong ideologies. They're open to new ideas. They change when the facts change. And he found that those foxes are better at, they get better at forecasting. So you can learn. So anybody's interested in this, Tetlock has a whole project called the Good Judgment Project, where he literally tries to train people to improve their forecasting and does it against very rigorous standards to see, okay, is your forecasting this year better than last year? Why is it better? But, it's a wonderful thing. It, and I've really been influenced by him. As much as the behavioral finance stuff, it's important that that's become more well-known. We have no evidence that uh, – so everybody went out and bought uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Like everybody is now very – everybody is now very quick to quote a lot of the behavioral finance yeah. tropes. And people look at forecasting, I think, with a more sober uh, – in a more sober way. But – isn't it important that you believe in something when you're putting money at risk? Like, I don't know that you have to live and die with a forecast, but shouldn't you believe s some level of probability? So the stat that markets go up three out of four years, that's a philosophy, yeah. right? Like you, you do need to have some basis yeah. of why you're investing in what. I, I hope I didn't give the impression that, that I think fundamental analysis is bullshit. It's no, no, not no, no, no. at all. Um, listen- The world's too complex. The, the, it, why do we own stocks? And I- I always go back, the very first stock, the Dutch East India Company in 1602, they floated, they created the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. This thing was the biggest thing in the history of the world. It basically was every multinational company in the world, one company, they owned the spices coming in from India and everything else, the banana trade, the coffee trade. And in the very first prospectus, we should do a show on this, 1602, I have the prospectus. They, what are you buying? They tell you, what are Did you they buying? they mail it to you or? Yeah, okay. it got okay. late. It took okay. 400 <laughs> years to get to me. Talk about a slow mail. But the, the, they said, you are 
are buying, when you buy our stock, you are buying a stream of profits coming from the spices, which we are going to sell when the ships come in. So here's the birth of fundamental analysis, them saying, you're getting a future stream of revenues or earnings from these spices. And number two, immediately at the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, because they didn't have data, they couldn't, they stood wait for the ships to come in. They had people who were rumors around and they would sell their stock without knowing what's going on. And they'd say, okay, well, I bought the stock at 100 and it's 105. So I'm, I don't know if the ship's going to come in. Literally, I'm going to sell. There's the birth of technical analysis. Right there, you got people immediately within the birth of the modern stock market doing fundamental and technical analysis. Now, I don't know any other reason. Uh, we have people, remember Arch Crawford used to talk no. about bi- astrology. He'd come in and say, the moon oh, is yeah, in yeah, Saturn, yeah, yeah, yeah. therefore Microsoft is a bot. I'm not kidding. This guy had an enormous <laughs> following in the 1990s. We'd go like, really? Did you put him on CNBC? Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Arch, look up Arch Crawford. He was famous. And and people would write in. They love hearing about this. And we'd go, go what is this guy doing? <laughs> Well, why why do you think so? If you can convince enough toward, people, yeah, this this so the, this is the GameStop. They want to believe the minute right. The minute the GameStop thing happened, people said, you know, Bob. So this all this bullshit about fundamental analysis. You see, the GameStop proves fundamentals don't matter because there is nothing fundamental here. And I said, listen, if you get enough people, f- p- the theory of stocks is the fundamental analysis. Just what I said, the Dutch East didn't come. But if you get enough people saying, I'm buying Microsoft on sunspots, and you get enough people in your religion to believe Microsoft on sunspots is the buying thing, you can convince people and they can move short, the market. Short, right, short term, anything can happen yeah. and probably And it will. does, it does. Yeah. And I think, I think young people get into the market with this idea that they can beat it. I think that's probably normal. Nobody opens up a book, it's, oh, gets, opens up an account, says, you know, I'm gonna buy the S P 500 and just set it and forget it. Nobody does that. So when I first read um, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, I was 24 years old. I got 30 pages and I said, this is total bullshit. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I reread it five years ago. I said, okay, this is a classic. I get it now. But to the point of fundamental investing, not being bullshit, but just being difficult, if somebody told you in 2019 that there's a global pandemic, you probably, sh- and the economy is going to shut down, you probably short as much as you can. The S&P was up, what, 28% yeah. in 2020? Facebook is another example. One of the greatest companies of all time in 2016, it was doing $5 billion in revenue a quarter. And so if somebody said to you, hey, by the time 2022 rolls around, this company will be doing $30 billion a quarter, 6X, what do you think the stock is going to do? It's flat since 2016. The revenue is up from five billion a quarter to thirty, and the stock has and the stock is back to where it was because so the, of forces that are completely out of our control. Yeah. And the multiples, the multiples too. The right? multiples. So That's remember, a, the multiple is you know it's just hard to explain to people about the multiple because they they can understand. All right, the earnings. Okay, so the earnings are up ten percent. So shouldn't yeah. the stock be up ten percent, Bob? And one of the things Bogle kept, you know, I called used to call Bogle in '97. I said, "What the hell happened?" This thing, Bob, do you understand what the multiple is? The multiple is what people are. So you got a stock that's making ten dollars, and it's got a dollar in earnings. Okay, so now, what happens if the economy changes and the company is still making a dollar in earnings, but they they don't think that that company is worth so much anymore, and it goes to eight dollars? The multiple is changing. What people are willing to pay for that dollar, it hasn't changed, but maybe they don't think that future stream of earnings so is worth as much. You can't quantify the earnings. The, you can't quantify the multiple because it's the vibes. It's you can't predict well, how people you, are going to feel about the market. It's very clear this year. You know, you can you can see one of the, what has happened is the multiple has collapsed, not the earnings. That 
that the earnings are remarkably steady this year. I mean, they're down a little bit for 2023 and late 2022, but what's collapsed is the multiple. The multiple was 21 in January. It's 15 right. now. In 2016, uh, investors were paying 17 times sales for Facebook, and now they're paying three. Are you, are you like, do you You're have- using a, sales, right? Well, yeah, I'm using yeah. sales. I'm using sales. Kyla, have you adopted um, like an investment philosophy- whether it's whether it's passive or active or like what what's your what's your take on just this the advent of behavioral finance as becoming like a mainstream topic? Yeah, I mean, for me, like I invest primarily in ETFs and crypto, so okay. pretty pretty passive in terms of the stock market itself. I just don't think I'm smart enough to beat it, um, and I think like having broad exposure is better. So that's how I do it. Yeah. Do you do you try to convey that, or you stay no. more on the the economy side and let people do with your information what they will? Yeah, my my whole goal with like the content is to give people tools and to help them sort of close the gap between like what's happening and what they understand about what's happening, and that's like very macroeconomic. See, the Facebook example is so interesting to me because. When you think about the hottest stocks of 2020, yeah. and I remember saying to Michael, I'm like, it's not supposed to work this way. The most popular brands of technology companies were also the best performing stocks. And I said, like, it's not supposed to be this intuitive. How much longer can this go on for? Like, people would be like, I love Peloton, and I made three times my money on Peloton stock. And go down the list of like all the leaders in the market, DraftKings Zoom, and yeah. Zoom, Teladoc. And I remember saying to myself, like, this is everything that I've been taught is not supposed to work from a behavioral finance. Like you're not supposed to, the stock market is not supposed to be a popularity contest of like, what's the coolest brand? Oh, that's the best stock. But it really was that way for, I don't know, a year, year and a half, year yeah. and a half or something like that. And look at the, well, uh, again, this is another factor is liquidity. That's very difficult mm -hmm. to figure out. And I used to talk to Jack about trying to figure this out. What is intuitively, if there's more money around, their prices should change because the money's available. Forget about the fundamental of whether the company's going to earn a dollar or not. Uh, if there's just a lot more money and money wants to go into risk, then, then it's going to change the prices. And so you have to ha address that issue. How do you figure yeah. that out? You made a very good point that you said that you like ETFs. One of the things that happened in behavioral economics is it really helped popularize index investing because after the financial crisis, everybody looked at this and everyone, including me, became a behavioral economist because we saw everyone selling. I agree with that. Selling at the bottom. March 9th, 2009, was, we didn't know it was the bottom, but uh, the – the number, the sales of mutual funds accelerated at the bottom. Now, it was down 50% already. A rational actor would say, we're 50% off the high. If you, you sure as hell do not sell. You either hold or buy at that point. But that is not what happened. people want the pain to stop. The and opposite that's, happened. That's, that's people sold even yeah. more. And I looked at this and I said, my whole generation is screwed. They're selling real estate at the bottom, stocks. They're never going to recover from this. It's going to be a decade before people Well, do. I think in 2009, you had to choose your adventure from there. So you probably changed a lot about what you used to believe. But then you said, I'm going to go one of two ways. I'm going to go the the route like who made the most money during this crash? And it's it's a handful of hedge funds. So I'm going to become a dyed-in-the-wool believer that there are people who could time the market or there are signals or that there is a reason for me to trade on macro data. That's one group of people. And then to your point, another group of people, a bigger group of people, they became Vanguard investors. Um, after seeing this, the crash and then the rebound, 
2010, 2011, 2012, you look at the flows into BlackRock and Vanguard. They just absolutely explode and they never look back. And they're enormous because exactly what she was just talking about, that behavioral investing gave a booth to indexing because the theory was, listen, if there is irrational – if there is – factors, if there are biases that are infecting all of us, then why even, why should we try to do that? Well, they don't affect me, we but move. I get what of you're saying. Of course not. Right. Uh, and uh, there's no overconfidence here at this table, but the, right. the, 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 why should we do that? Let's just stay with indexing. And that's really what gave an enormous boost to the business. I think we need to really do it. Also address the, the, the going in and going out question. You know, the, the evidence is just really overwhelming. The academic literature about the ability to market time is just amazing. S&P just had their, their SPIVA report out. They look at active management very carefully, and it's still the same. 90% of large-cap fund managers underperform after 10 years. 90%. It's enormous. And Jack Bogle, just to set the record straight, so I'm not saying here all I believe is indexing, Jack Bogle was very instrumental in the creation of active management at Vanguard because he knew that there were people exactly what you're talking about that, well, that's nice. Okay, I understand it, but I want to play. I want to try to beat the market. I think I'm smart. And he was instrumental in creating actively managed funds at Vanguard, including Capital Opportunity, huge funds, still there. And he knew, and he used to say, okay, you want to scratch the itch? I still tell you people, it's in in his book, uh, he doesn't mind active. Funds. He minds high, high cost, cost active. active right? right. And he was extremely aggressive about that. He said, Bob, I don't care. I'm telling you, the guys who – the rare few who can really outperform end up underperforming because the amount of that they're charging destroys the alpha. And that was one of his key insights, aggressively key control the cost. And in his books – uh, common sense on mutual funds. He shows, look, suppose you get the uh, a, a 4% return a year on stocks and because of the cost associated with paying that, you only get 3.2%. He had tables that said, okay, you don't think this is a lot? 3.2 versus 4? Let me show you what this is at $10,000 a year over 30 years and it's enormous. So the the the, the power uh, of, of, of numbers, of large numbers come into effect and of, uh, it turns out a difference of 1% is actually enormous over 30 years. And that's one of Bogle's central insights. So not against active management, just finding ways to control it. So I want to pivot to I want to pivot to where we might be going next. And Kyla did a thing about the US dollar on, uh, on your Substack. You did a thing that I thought was really good where you laid out the the power of the dollar to almost like set up dominoes and wait, can you say the dollaromino's? Yeah. <laughs> Did I get it right? Yeah, on the first? But you were talking about pumpkin policy mm, and dollaromino's, yeah. and um, I know it's a bigger piece, but I think there's a lot of meaning here. And I talked about seeing the dollar go negative this morning. Mm. That to me really seems to be a better signal for the stock market at least this year than anything else people could have looked at and probably kept you out of a lot of the head fake rallies. But can you talk about what you were trying to say about liquidity and uh, and what you think the ramifications are here? Oh, man. I mean, there's – I don't even know where to begin. But I think it's 
is like to the point of like active passive management and like the U.S. stock market. What's really interesting about what the Federal Reserve is doing is they're raising rates and that creates a safe haven for the dollar, as you all know. So a bunch of people are going into the dollar, making the dollar super strong. And that is just wreaking havoc on countries that have dollar denominated debt, energy imports that are priced in dollars. So like it's like all of a sudden this domestic monetary policy that we have here in the United States to protect the United States inflation or uh, diminish that um, is, is having these like worldwide ramifications. Because other countries have their own currencies. Yeah. And if the dollar's strengthening, <laughs> yeah. they're weakening. Exactly. Like Japan, for like, well, Japan is about, I don't know what's about to happen there, but it's super concerning. Like they had no bid on their 10-year bonds because the government- so the government. had days yeah. where the bond didn't trade. Yeah, yeah, there's no yield at all. Yeah. And the yen is at a lowest level since There's no 1990. market for it either. Yeah. 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 And it's Who's been that way forever. It? Yeah. And why would they? Because the government will step in and do it. Um, but then you have emerging market nations that are impacted by this. Like Europe is just going through it in general right now. So there's all these like tipping effects that the dollar has. And it's all not it's not all because the Federal Reserve, but because the Federal Reserve is raising rates, yeah. creating a safe haven status out of the dollar. Um, it's creating a. But, but so, this is a long history. You know, we, it, when yeah. I got, became the stocks correspondent in 97, I walked right into the Asian financial mm -hmm. crisis, the Thai bot crisis. Yeah. This is exactly what happened. The, all of the emerging market countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, were attracting foreign inflows. They were keeping uh, rates high. Uh, and all of a sudden, the Fed started raising rates and money started flowing out. Their yeah. currencies were tied to the dollar and it all kind of blew up. So this isn't the first time this has happened. We've seen this. Uh, and it created quite a lot of havoc. It really ruined the economies of the yeah. emerging markets for years in the 90s. And I think the worry about it, like, so yeah, it has happened, but like now, and like you, I guess you could always say this, but like now everything is so much more fragile because of the pandemic, because everybody is still recovering in that way. So it's kind of like, you know, at one point, is it going to tip hard enough that it creates like a crater instead of it tipping back? So does increasing complexity increase risk? That one thing that's happened that's very obvious to me is compared to when I came on the floor in 1997, the world's a lot more complex. Mm -hmm. There's many more instruments. There's much more data points. I, I mean, I I can remember thinking, gee, if I just master, you know, a couple dozen things in 1998, I'll be a genius and then I could, you know, coast the rest of my life. It turns out the completely wrong. The exact opposite has happened. Uh, the world's gotten much more complex and harder to understand. So there, there's some informatics here that, that are but coming. But Bob, I think, I think with that, investors have gone the other way. And they said the world is so complex that I'm just going to automate my index investing. And every two weeks, come hell or high water, money's going to come out of my form, uh, come out of my paycheck, go into my four hundred one k, and it buy is a rational. If if that like to say things have gotten so complex that I need to simplify how I live in that world. Yeah. Like the answer is not always. Well, let me level up and out complex at all the complexity. So I understand that um, you. So you quoted uh, Waller from the Federal Reserve, and I love this. Uh, Waller said, a lot of people complain about treasury market strains and liquidity. A lot of people complain about treasuries aren't liquid. What does that mean? It means people aren't willing to pay the price you're selling at. Okay, well, lower the price. On October 31st, the liquidity for pumpkins is very high. But on November 1st, the market liquidity for pumpkins goes to zero. That's a good line. It I'm not going to try to step in and try to fix the pumpkin market. That's not a good line, though. Because <laughs> no, we're not selling pumpkins. Well, bad analogy. But it's good for pumpkins. Yeah. It's, it yeah. works for but pumpkins. But this idea of like, it's, this is the same with the job market. It's like, you can't hire anyone. Oh, no, you definitely can. <laughs> You're just going to have to pay a lot more yeah. for that person because the labor market is a market. Yeah. Uh, a lot of liquidity complaints do boil down to, well, change your price and yeah. you'll bring in liquidity. Yeah. 
but sometimes not always, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it just it creates so much more fragility. Like uh, Janet Yellen came out yesterday, and she was like, "Hey, treasuries aren't getting bids. Like that's a little bit concerning." JP Morgan had a big note about it. Like there's just not structural demand for U.S. Treasuries, and that is. Waller's problems. That is the Federal Reserve's problem. So he can talk. He can talk about pumpkins, um, but you know, if there isn't liquidity in these markets, the Federal Reserve will likely have to step in. So I haven't heard a lot of concern about liquidity yet in the financial media, but we had a liquidity issue in 2019 with the repo stuff yeah. before the pandemic. The Fed was intervening in overnight money. So that is, I think, that could be the kind of thing that maybe makes them rethink how far they want to go. If that starts to become a louder, but uh, is, if there's no bid, isn't the implication that the market's expecting higher yields? Right, mm-hmm. that's the obvious implication Obviously. there. So, you know, the so they're kind the of getting their way. Right. Then. If you believe the market's right, then Jan the, Van Eck was talking about this. Remember, Jan Van Eck said, "There's no buyer for bonds except the." So Fed. he was sitting where you're sitting now, Jan Van Eck. This was six months ago, and maybe. we were trying to we were trying to reason with him that like maybe three percent would be. Would be where people get greedy and buy up all he the goes, bonds. Guys, He's like, there's no buyers. They're not the listening. Fed. Yeah. There are no buyers in the world but the Fed, yeah. and it ended up being extremely. I, I had right. him on last week uh, on on ETF Edge on my show, and I, and he's the commodity guy. I've known him for 20 years. Yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to get him to talk about gold and the oil service uh, ETF that he runs and and agricultural stuff, and, and he said. You know what I really like? I really like bonds right now. I said, you talk, I'm talking about commodities. He said, I know that, but I don't like commodities. I like bonds. I'm telling mm. you, Bob, bonds. What, this was last, this last, was last week. Last week? Yeah. I like I like uh, three-month treasuries at 4%. I love them. I love it. We were just talking about this. Right. Junk bonds are yielding 9%. Fallen angels, which used to be investment grade, just got knocked yeah. out. Well, there's Jan's fund. Van Eck uh, runs a fallen angel. 8%? Fund. Yeah. That's yeah. not bad. The yeah. Occidental's in there. You know what's getting a lot of attention? On Monday, I'm going to have a guy on. Um, they are- you know, single stock ETFs. Mm. There's now they just introduced single bond ETFs. Can you, so wait, can you explain years, why we need a single stock ETF? Oh I'm man, still you're not really it. you're really going there. They first off, we don't. Um, we really don't. Do you t- okay, do we you, don't. Can you say that? A single stock. What do you mean? ETF. Can I say that? I just did. Uh, it's it's like we don't need them. Okay, no, it's for leverage. It's leverage. That's why. Well, wait. Are you asking me? Do is I that personally? What is the reason? What is no? What it's leverage. They, it's leverage. It's leverage. What does that mean? So you can get two times the opposite exposure if you want yeah. to Tesla. Yeah. What? Instead of because it's, it's easier to do that than to trade options. Frankly, I'll tell you why this is happening. Uh, the ETF business is maturing. They're new, looking for new lines of business. And if you if there is enough interest in people who want to bet for and against Elon Musk, fine, they'll figure out a way to do it, and they did. Right. So the answer is: Do, do we need it? Does the investing world need There's it? There's a lot of stuff do, we don't. Do need we that need leverage and inverse ETFs to begin with? Do we need three times inverse oil? I don't think so. No, we don't. The, uh, it, but that's the question is, should we stop people from doing it? Yeah. I don't think so unless there is some kind of systemic risk that, that it creates. And then I'm just saying should no. We, should, so here's my position. Wait, wait, 2% should we have of the a volume. Three times, three times long and short oil, but no um, – one-for-one one Bitcoin <laughs> ETF. Spot. Oh, now you're, so you're sh- switching topics here. The, the short answer to that is um, there are reasons. Well, you know, for all the problems I have with Gary Gensler, there are there are some very rational reasons why he's not approving uh, a Bitcoin ETF. I agree, but I'm saying if you're going to approve the other thing, it makes it harder to justify not approving it. The, the I uh, agree there are legitimate reasons not to do it. Th- just on leverage and inverse ETFs, there is no particular 
I don't think they serve an awful lot of purpose. I understand why people want to play them. They have enormous volume. Yeah. It's used by intraday traders, um, and sometimes they're using it to hedge portfolios. Uh, but for the the average person, no, I don't think you need it. The two percent of the volume and ninety eight percent of the problems that actually occur in the right. ETF business. The the ultra Q, the triple Q is TQQQ had twenty plus billion dollars in assets in December. Right. It's now under ten. Yeah, that money's it, evaporated. No, but, vaporized. but look on the other side. Every day, the the leverage and inverse S and P and triple Qs are the biggest things that trade on the ETF world. You can look at the dollar volume and or you can look at share volume. Every single day, they're so, there. Demand. So there are people that are playing them. They, the get, problem, the job, they get the job done. The problem for is very simple. Traders. You cannot explain. The investing public cannot get their head around the daily reset. We get, that, I get that. We get that question all the time. They just cannot explain it. I feel like they every, can't get around we explain it. that every three months, and we still get the same question. How, yeah. how do these things work? Yeah. So, that there's decay, and that over 30 days, it won't look anything like 3x. The, no, on a daily basis. you it, it, People think, oh, I bought two times the S&P 500. So the s S&P is up 1%, therefore I have 2%. Yes, one day. The next day, right. though, if you bought that, that that day, the next day it's going to reset again, and you're not going to get two times. You hear people be like, well, long-term I'm bullish, so I want to be 3x – uh, I want to be 3x the NASDAQ. You, you don't you – That's can't, not how There is no way you can do that <laughs> and, and, and make it run. If you are – if you're going up, the market will work for you. If it's choppy, you can actually go down. You can go the other direction. You're not going to get three times. People can't get their head around – no matter how many times we put up numbers, examples, it's impossible. And I so the average public I, – I tell people to stay away from leverage and inverse ETFs. Um, Tesla – so I, we don't talk a lot about this stuff, but look at, look, look at this. This is like the literal like textbook head and shoulders of yeah. Tesla. It's, Holy moly! Well, so this is an interesting situation where everybody on Earth knows that a lot of stock has to be sold okay. by Elon Musk to complete another transaction. Um, I really don't know what you would do with this if you were a Tesla bull. Why would you sit through this? It's it's this a guarantee that he has to sell. This is what's so depressing about it to me. Uh, I think Elon Musk is one of the great geniuses of the 21st century. I, I think he is the Alva Edison of his day. No one else has ever figured out a way to build a rocket to go to Mars. No one else has revitalized the electric vehicle. About land a rocket. Nobody else, right. <laughs> nobody else has figured out solar power storage like he has. These are really big problems. Any idiot could run Twitter. I'm sorry. I'm not impressed at all. Nobody can do what Elon Musk has done. No one else. He's virtually unique. So here's a man that we need this guy's brain power. I'm a rooting for this guy. And now he's off in, in this corner. He's not going to run it, though. With this nonsense. He's not going to run it. Well, I don't know. He's, he'll you be don't know that. distracted by it, but he already is. You don't know that. Look look, look at the brain power that has been drained from him just dealing with this. Look what, the, look what Tesla holders have to deal with right now. I, look, I, I, I'm just a big fan of his, and it's, it's very depressing to me. We need Elon Musk to solve big problems, not, not to figure out right, a way Musk, to use Twitter as a platform. Musk owns 9% of Twitter stock already because he had already bought it. He needs $37.5 billion in cash to buy the rest. He has about $13 billion in debt, in debt coming in to help fund it, debt financing. Um, he's already sold $15 billion worth of Tesla stock that we know of. And then there's $7 billion coming in from like Andreessen 
and some of his his buddies. So how do you play that? How do you even? How do so you? He's got to sell. I have no idea. He's also selling perfume though, to help pay for it. <laughs> I mean, I, give me what you what you got a you got a spicy take on this whole shit show. Are you are you on Twitter even? Do you me? Yeah. Am I on Twitter? Well, I'm not, so I wouldn't know. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Okay, I wasn't asking you facetiously. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I, yeah, I just I'm very on Twitter. Okay, um, Kyle's an amazing tweeter. Yeah, no. you're extremely yeah. you're extremely on Twitter. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I, like my whole take, you know, he's a meme lord guy. Um, and Agreed. I think he thinks this is funny, or he did think it was funny, and now he's sort of realizing. And now it's like, wait, this wasn't yeah, a joke. He, he I, poked the bear. Okay. Do you think so? Do you think that uh, Twitter will control? All right. Question is like, do you think it'll get better? Like, can it, it can't get worse? Can we start with that baseline? It would be tough for Twitter to be worse, right? Twitter.com? Yeah. Like, for, yeah. <laughs> like the app, it's, the app yeah. itself. Yeah, not yeah, the sorry. Stock. No, yes. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> well. Twitter.com. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it could get worse. How could it possibly? I think if you allow people. If they re release the Nazis onto yeah, the platform? Exactly. Okay, yeah. that might happen. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, in what other way, though? Functionally, probably not, right? No, I mean, they, 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 they try their best, I think. So, okay. Sort so, of. so are you hopeful that he will do some of the stuff with cleaning up bots that he says he wants to do? I think for him, a lot of it is just talking. Like, he has that idea for the X app, where yeah. it's like that super app. Um, and I think he wants to maybe use Twitter for that, but. I mean, I don't know if he has a, a master plan for it. Okay, you are not abandoning the platform. If he buys it? Yeah. I don't know if it's going to go through. It seems like a lot of people are pulling financing, um, and it might be tough. I feel like he's going to If he buys it, Kyle's, figure it out. Kyle's moving to Truth Social. <laughs> my, prediction, my prediction is, like, a year from now, we'll be, we'll be reporting that um, there is word that he's going to merge it with Tesla. Well, how about this? That's he, how. That's what he'll will bail bail out the financing. Is he going to make money it. on Twitter? I think he, he did make, it already with the Solar City, so it's not like he got total, away with that. But that's a fundamental Twitter. thing Tesla's that was integrated Twitter. into you don't the think plan. That though Elon Twitter's not integrated into anything. You don't think Elon could effectively make the case that I have decided the best way to market and sell more Teslas is um, the brand awareness I get from Twitter. No. Therefore, it's synergistic, and he rather, could tweet without owning it. That's true too. That's true too. Don't ruin this for me. This is what I think is going to happen. So but no, I think he can make a lot of money on Twitter. How? I think subscriptions. The com- I think the company could be worth a lot more than forty. Would you pay? To, would you pay subscriptions to follow tweets? They have Twitter Blue, and people pay for that now. And you can pay. I think that. it's tiny. Yeah, it's like two ninety nine a month. Yeah. Would you pay? Is there anyone you could think of that you would pay to follow their tweets? Actually, there you know, it, when you think of the stuff you pay for, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, I literally lost track of the streaming services that I own. Yeah. I if they just simply know. said, if the answer is yes, if I probably you use Twitter would. for real, if you have more than a thousand followers, it costs five bucks a month. I always said they should have charged for TweetDeck. And you get ten dollars a month from the biggest content creators on the platform. Do they kill TweetDeck or is- for Mac? Yeah. Why would they? Why? It's insane. Wow. It makes no Don't sense to me, me at all. Why Twitter does what Twitter does? Right. So it, that that's but insane Instagram to me. just enabled subscriptions to people, so you can pay to like follow people on Instagram now too. Um, so I'd imagine like the subscription based model is gonna go to Twitter's Twitter. monetization is crap. I've been on the platform it's for bad, ten years, terrible. ten hours a day, and it still serves me Dove's Woman deodorant uh, ads. And it how is, much have you bought? Well, they only <laughs> serve it because you're buying it, right? I mean, somebody knows what it they're is, doing. It has no idea who I am. And I'm only on the app 10 hours a day. Um, I want to do a little bit more on the book, Bob. I know we we have you for a finite amount of time. You're, where are you speaking tonight? 
Uh, the Security Traders Association okay, in why, Washington. Why are they doing that in Washington? Is that is that where they're based? Well, every year they do a whole thing around market structure, and okay. uh, you know the SEC is there, and that's kind yeah, of yeah. important. So they, oh, cool. this is the organization that tries to figure out what our trading system looks like and what should be done. Absolutely. And uh, as as rickety as it is, and uh, it, it's got some strange aspects. If you think about it, it's very remarkable how well our system works. Uh, we have 40 dark pools and 15 stock exchanges. It sounds pretty rickety to me. It sounds like they could break down at any time, and yet it doesn't. It's pretty well, you remarkably have, efficient. So you have probably witnessed more up, up close than anyone else I could think of the changes in that market structure over the last 25 years. Do you think that there's going to be this big Gensler-led overhaul um, on how all of this stuff works and who gets paid for what? Or no. you don't think— do you think there'll be a proposal, though, that ends up not going He'll through? He'll make some modest proposals. Look what happened to payment for order flow. I mean, when you really look at the at this whole well, thing— My understanding is that nothing, nothing happened. Well, that's exactly the point. Okay. <laughs> nothing has happened. Uh, and if you really look at what's going on, uh, you could rail all you want against uh, you know a few uh, people who are uh, reaping the profits. But it, the system has worked very efficiently. It is not free. Payment for order flow costs money. Somebody is In paying the form for of it. a slightly worse execution. Right. But you are— you are kidding yourself if you don't see that in the last 20, 30, 40 years, and so even since I got in here in the 90s, uh, consumers are getting better and better deals. The pricing is better. The bid asks are better. I don't better. understand the hysteria about payment for order flow. Well, because it's op- because it's by its very nature, there's enough opacity, and there are people becoming billionaires okay, from it. Okay, fine. That they it looks say, like some they maybe say, they don't like the billionaires. Ken Griffin's making. $8 billion a year. So Wait, hold, on, hold on. Doesn't it? Hold on. This is my understanding of it. It's the same amount of money is being made. It's just shifted who's making it. The brokerages now make effectively no money. Yeah. And Citadel and Virtu are making this all was, of the money. This is a business decision. Charles Schwab, I'm just picking on them. I'm just, they're one example of many. They just decided there was no reason for them to be in that kind of business anymore. Transactional. That, yes. Right. And what happened was Reg NMS in 2005 basically uh, uh, put a stamp of approval on what you call price time priority. Uh, it, they – established the fact that everyone had to provide the best bid and offer that's out there. Okay, so what does that mean? I have the best bid and offer, but so does the other guy and the other guy. That meant that the person who got there first made the difference. That's what you call price time priority. Everyone has to provide the best prices, but after that, you get there first, you get that trade. Right. That created high-frequency traded. That's what created that incentive for people to say, you know what? If you and I, we get the best prices, if I can put my computer closer to the stock exchange – co-locate it. I'll get there first. I'm going to out-compete you. And that's how we got this perverse system where everybody's trying to move quicker, uh, faster than everybody else. I What I see here is uh, they have spent so much money now, these few firms, to be faster and faster that a company like Charles Schwab said, why am I in that business? I'm not in this right. business of trying to put computers next to the stock exchange. Find somebody who can do that. But by the way, they better damn make sure they get the best price. And they have people watching these people like a hawk. The idea they're getting ripped off is, it doesn't make any sense to me. If they're not executing, they're fired, those people. So I don't rather, care how rich they I'd are. I'd rather them take a, a fraction of a penny than pay eight ninety five per trade. Well, that's another factor. People don't understand that even when I got there 30 years ago, yeah. you a trade, you want to buy 100 shares of IBM in 1990, 1.5%, 2%. On. And before the commission, <laughs> That's what I did for a living. I yeah. sold stocks at 2% I mean, imagine commission. Two percent, and today you can almost do it in a frictionless way. On the buy way. and the sell. Yeah, wow. 
you you would buy a you would buy a stock for a client, charge one and a half percent, let's say. So so a client would give you fifty thousand dollars. You would charge one and a half percent. The stock went up ten points. You would sell it for sixty thousand dollars. Take another one and a half. That's three percent round trip. That was the max. And then the next day, not even waiting for settlement, you'd buy another stock, another one and a half percent. Start all over again. That's obviously a shitty business for the client. It was a great business for the brokers. It disappeared as it should have. But now, I, I guess, I guess if what what would you replace speed with? So right now the business model is speed. What, well, look, what would you do to people, change it? People say, in a perfect world, I would like everything to be put on a lit exchange. I'd like everyone to put the bids and offers in a big book that everybody can see. That's not the world we live in. That is a fantasy. If I have, if I, if I'm a big institutional guy and I got a hundred thousand shares of Pfizer to buy at the close, I sure as hell am not going to put it on uh, on, on a public uh, uh, limit order book somewhere. You're going to get picked off. The high-frequency guys are going to see this immediately, yeah. and they're going to play right around your order immediately. This is the world that we were given by Reg NMS. That's what I said. You want to change the world? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. You're going to exhaust, spend your career. I'm dealing with the real world. In the real world, the, the, what happens is you get the payment for order flow because Schwab says, we're not doing this. I'm not doing this business is high frequency yeah. thing. I don't care. I just want to move it through. So fine, let's all, in a perfect world, I'd like to have everything to be put on a public lit exchange, but we don't live there. So people have these dark pools where they can put up, or, where, they, where they can have orders, transactions go, where, where the world can't see them and get picked off. That's why we have these dark pools. Would I prefer if they went away? Yes. Would I prefer if they didn't have to pay for order flow? Would I prefer if the New York Stock Exchanges and the NASDAQs, uh, didn't charge a rebate fee, which we have. I'd prefer that. Yeah, but we don't live in that perfect world. I live in the real world. And so far, it's remarkable how well it operates, given how strange the circumstances that were around the creation of the whole thing. So, Bob, Bob Pisani, yes. ladies and gentlemen. Can I just say one thing about you guys? I want you to. I went to your conference. Everybody pay attention. This is going to be something nice. The Future Proof Conference that you guys Thank had. Thank you so much for coming. And well, by the way, people were f***ing starstruck. They, they were so excited to meet. Did you find that? Um, uh, no, actually. Had, people came people... up to me and, 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 oh, and kept saying, you know, when are we going to get better? When's the stock market going to well, get better? of course. There's uh, that too. So but I saw you taking pictures of people. People, were, I'm happy to people... take pictures of people. I, I love people coming up and okay. talking about the markets. But I want to talk about your conference. I went to this conference for a reason. I think the conferences are in. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Oh, my God. That was, that was him. That wasn't that was me. Okay. Me. The, I went because the conference business is in big trouble. It's boring. Uh, and not just financial conferences. There's too much of everything, too many biotech conferences, too many financial conferences. They're boring old guys with gray hair and big noses and dark glasses. Not me, but I'm the other old You're guys. You're describing me 10 years now. Go easy. And we all sit there. We go to the conference. They give a slide presentation. And then we have a cocktail. And it's boring. And you guys had an idea. You said, so how do we get more young people interested in this thing? Little Drugs. Boring white guys. And <laughs> this, we should take this on the road. <laughs> so I, your idea was this. First off, let's do it outside. Let's do it on a beach. Mm. And this is your, your central insight. Let's put as much emphasis on social as we do on content. So I show up at this thing. I go, I'm there for three days. I go to the first, the parties the first night. It's Monday night. And there's a bunch of people. They're all stunningly good-looking millennials, and I'm like the oldest thing in the room by 40 years. And I say to this guy, he's there, I said, so you, you went to the content today. It's Monday. 
And he said, no, we got in Sunday night, went to all the parties and getting up to 11 o'clock in the morning. I said, what the hell? What, what are you here for? He said, let me tell you something. I'm a RIA. I'm a registered investment advisor. I'm from Detroit. I got seven guys with me. I brought them here as a team building thing. Yeah. We work hard. And I said, guys, let's go. We're going to go hang out. We're going to go meet some new friends and we're going to we're going to party. And he said, tomorrow I'm going to the content. I'm going to go. And that opened my eyes that th this is really important. You guys had rap stars and DJs. Steve Leisman's Grateful Dead cover band, Stella Blues Band was there. Wonderful. But the point is that you want to figure out how to get more people involved. Social is important. Now, I also had old school guys come, old school RIA guys that said, you know, with a lot of parties here, and we st we're still interested in the content. So yeah. you got to figure out a way. It's like the, my point is, people like you and me, we knock ourselves out about content at these things. We just obsess all the time, and it turns out a lot of that's important, but it isn't the that's only table stakes. Thing. So right, content. Of course, you have the good content. The conference business was about CE creds, like continuing education. It's a requirement if you're a CFP. You have to go to a certain amount of events a year. The pandemic showed us we could do that online. So now what? How are you going to get people on a plane? How are you going to convince right. people to leave their their kids for, for two days, three days? Well, there has to be something there right. that's meaningful to them that they can't do exactly. on the internet. And it turns out that thing is networking. And, and then my point here about what you guys are doing so well is the, and Rob, the Robinhood model that I look at. When that happened three or four years ago, 20 million new accounts, I said, hallelujah, where, what the hell? Where are these young people? Thank God this group, Robinhood, got I them. Agree. And who gives a damn if they only got 5,000 people, $5,000 in the account? And the derision these people were met with, I couldn't understand it. They said, oh, they don't know anything. Bunch of Reddit you know, guys, and they all think we're idiots. I say, God bless They're them. They're going to be so much smarter than we were at their age. Right. They are mainlining exactly. this stuff. And here is our central mission. Your central mission, which you're right on top of, as you always are, both of you, uh, is to figure out how to keep them and not have them wave their hands and say, ah, it's all a bunch of conspiracy bullshit. Markets it's the hedge rigged. funds. The market's rigged. That's all. It's not rigged. Well, that's why that's and why, that's, that's that's why Kyle is here, because they may not believe me, but I, I think they'll, they'll believe you. Um, well, look how much, look how I never had a, t a 25 year old when I was 25 that explained a lot of this right. stuff to me because we right. were listening to old guys. Even then we were listening to the old guys. So this is the beauty of having you here, you helping educate. The point is, don't you agree? We've got to find a way to keep those people as investors long term and don't make the same dumb mistakes <laughs> I did. My generation did. We partied our ass off in the 1970s. Can we keep that? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but <laughs> you should figure out a way. I should have been investing in stocks in 75 and not sold my two shares of Kawiki Burl. Instead Co. of being at KISS concerts. Uh, hey, uh, can, can we keep, can we keep this generation? Even if like we go into a recession now, is there going to be like mass disillusionment or do you think like we can keep the, keep these kids and they'll get smarter from this? I think you can keep them. Yeah. It'll be okay. What else are they going to do? Yeah. Right. Gotta do something. Gotta do something. Did you have fun today? Yeah, yeah. Did you? Oh, I had a great, <laughs> I had a great time. Uh, did you have fun today? It was fabulous. Did we all learn stuff today? I, I, I want to thank you both for. You guys are figuring out a way to get what I give a shit about young people involved. Remember, what business are you in? You could say, eh, "We're in the stock business." You're not in the stock business. Communication. We're not business. even the retired business. We're you, and to a certain extent, I am because I follow you guys. We're in the dreams business. That's mm. what it is. We're in the business of helping people realize their dreams. 
that's what the purpose is. Unless you're in love with owning IBM, the purpose is to have something in the future to show for it. Well, that we and that's what on. we're doing. We're selling ideas and selling the future and selling dreams to people. And I think we should take that very, very seriously. And you guys are just doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Bob. Could, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to, do we have a moment? Like, when, when are you running out? We have six Four minutes. Nine. All right, let's do favorites really quickly, and then we'll get both you guys out of here. And we had so much fun today. Um, I wanted to ask you, Bob, if there are any, besides your fabulous book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, which, what's the date this comes out? Tuesday, October 18th. Okay, oh. so everyone's going to go and buy a copy, and we're going to link to that everywhere. And uh, I had so much fun reading it over the weekend. Um, are there any books or shows or movies or music that you're excited about right now that you would share with, uh, with the folks? Well, I saw Hall and Oates at the, the Hard Rock on Friday in Atlantic City. They were pretty. They were pretty damn Real, good. They're still at it, those guys. Yeah, they okay. were. Their last leg of the tour, and you know, they're Philly guys. Um, okay. Uh, uh, other than the fact that the the rock and roll giants are passing the torch, you know, the Lady Gaga is going to be selling out the stadiums. They're the the new things out there, and I think it's wonderful to keep music alive. You know, who's the new guy. thing is Bad Bunny. Yes, this guy Huge just toy. this guy just broke every concert tour record other than like the Rolling Stones. What's bad? Who's Bad Bunny? Exactly. He's, he's, it's, it's. He's Puerto Rican. He's yeah. Puerto Rican and he sings in Spanish and there is nothing on earth bigger than Bad Why? Bunny right is now. Is he such a good singer or, or what is it exactly? His, his community comes out like you would not believe. It's the Wild. Super Bowl every night. Yeah. They're selling right. out the biggest venues in, in America mm-hmm. and uh, it's just, it's erupting and traditional media doesn't even know how to explain it. Which well, I find fascinating. Right. So, and a lot of it's social media. And the point is, music evolves. The old timers, my generation, said, you know, rock's dead, Bob. I said, well, no, it's it's evolved. It's okay, now country so music. Three guitars and a and a drum, is the, the sonic possibilities are kind of exhausted. We've been doing this since Chuck Berry, for crying out loud, 1956, three guitars and a, and a, yeah. and a, and a, a drum. There are other sonic possibilities. Out there. Jazz itself also kind of it didn't hasn't petered out. It's still around. But when it really mattered from the 1930s into the late 50s and mid-60s, that period is sort of past now. So the music evolves, and I think it's wonderful. I'm not a huge Bad Bunny fan, but I understand why people like him, and I think he's great. And we need to keep investing in new technology. We need to believe in the future. We need to be optimistic. New music, new technology. The world's getting better. It's not getting the worse. We're not going to hell. Young people are great. And what I found as an old fart, you give a little respect, you get some respect. Well, from I agree people. with that. I agree. I couldn't agree with that more. Kyla, you got a favorite for us? Yeah, so I'll take, I guess, the other side of your trade and say, like, Uh-oh. you can learn a lot from the past, too. So I, there's this quote from James Baldwin where you can learn a lot more from literature than you can from, like, literally anything else. Um, so I think, you know, Philosophize This is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, I always try to include a quote about philosophy at the end of every newsletter, kyla.substack.com. Um, and then, you know, talking about Hedgehog and Fox, that's Isaiah Berlin. So, like, you know, markets are essentially philosophy, too, and it's good to remember that as we talk about some court Philosophize This is the name of the podcast? Yeah. How often good. do they put out episodes? Uh, usually it's once a month. Yeah. Okay. We're going to check out that. And where do we get all of the Kyla stuff? So you're Kyla.substack. Yeah. yeah, Kyla. That's easy. Substack. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Kyla Scan. Yeah. So Kyla that's on Scan. Instagram. Kyla Scan is uh, Twitter and Instagram? And TikTok. Yeah. And, and then TikTok. I have my YouTube as well and my podcast. Okay. How yeah. many TikToks ha- uh, are you putting out on a weekly basis? You're doing one, one or two, it looks like. One a day. One a day. Okay. I can't put, yeah, Do you know that I am verified on TikTok? That's amazing. And I'm like really good at it. They won't Not verify me. 
So. Uh, how many followers do you have on TikTok? Uh, 151K. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. Incredible. Yeah. I have 27,000. That's awesome. Bob has like 90,000. Uh, yeah. I do. I the, did, did you open I that account? account? Is that one nice? Michael, you got a favorite for us? Uh, yeah, the New York Giants. We're back. It's been a long we time. We are back. I, I literally- Are we four and one? I almost cried at the end of the game. My wife's like, what in the world? No, I, that was amazing. Yeah, it's, it's been a minute. So very, very happy. I have two very quickly. There's a really great writer. Her name is Jessica Lesson. Mm. And if, if you know the website, The Information- which is like very heavy Silicon Valley kind of insider baseball stuff on tech. Jessica does this email briefing for the people like me who don't have time to read all the articles. And she just has a really unique voice and is very witty and gives you everything you need in one email. So subscribe to uh, the briefing from the information by Jessica Lesson. Uh, any hip hop fans in the room today or am I outnumbered for a change? John, you're nodding. Freddie Gibbs, you're a Freddie Gibbs guy? He's great. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank God somebody. <laughs> His new album, I think, is the best album of the summer fall yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, so everyone check out Soul Sold Separately. This is, he's calling it his debut album because he spent 10 years doing independent mm -hmm. shit on his own. This is like, I guess, a real label. It's definitely not a debut album, but it is incredible. Every single song is is a slap. All right, that's I, I all. saw a wonderful band this summer. It took a young Krungbin from Texas. Yeah, Rock, they do Texas Sun with Texas uh, Sun. They're that's my right. favorite band. Yeah, is that They're your fabulous. favorite band? Oh, wow. yeah. They're great. Yeah, my current band. Yeah, yeah. Wait, who sings on Texas Sun? Is that Leon Bridges? Leon Bridges? Leon Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. That. I mean, that's, really that's that a was good. a few years ago. That's yeah. that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Or, the new album is great. It's basically blues. Yeah. It, How but do you it's pronounce the name of the band? Krungbin. It means airplane in Thai, I believe. Well, of, of course it does. Well, everybody knows that. <laughs> I mean, shit. It's you, on Twitter. You fucking Googled that, though. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Honest to God. I took, well, yeah, of course. I speak Thai, right? I don't even speak English very well. You, <laughs> you, know, you, guys, you guys are awesome. As I said at the beginning of the show, both rock stars just want to say thank you so much thank you. Thank for you. coming in. Really appreciate it. Guys, you made the episode very special I hope you had fun we'll make sure everyone checks out all of your stuff and for God's sake Bob Pisani uh, this is like the voice of the stock market please buy this book Shut Up and Keep Talking is you, the title Shut of the book. Up and Keep Talking by Bob Pisani you will enjoy it as much as I did I know it alright guys we're gonna thank roll you. out thank you so much alright so that was that, that was, was the warm up and I just <laughs> wanted you guys to get a feel for what the show is like so <laughs> good. now we're gonna get rid of it real <laughs> That was great.